welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we have Surgeon Commander Paul Rees. Paul is an interventional cardiologist at Barts in London and also works at the Dundee Heart Centre. He's a HEMS consultant for East Anglian Air Ambulance, is the chair of the Defence Resuscitation Committee and has served with the Royal Navy for many years on submarines with the Royal Marine Commandos and with the MERT, the Medical Emergency Response Team in Afghanistan. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. Nice to talk to you. So we're going to chat today about post-resuscitation care, which I often feel is one of those things that we kind of skim over when we're teaching resuscitation. And the assumption seems to be that once we've got a, a rhythm back, that's it. It's all kind of champagne and home for tea and medals. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably true. To be fair, that's probably where all the work starts in terms of getting your patient. You now have a patient who really is clinging to life by their fingernails. They've just been in cardiac arrest. We know that they've got a very high likelihood still of not surviving. And we've now got to get our skates on and do meaningful stuff at the scene. And at the same time, arrange them to go to the right centre to get the right care. So one of the things that seems to be talked about more and more is this post-cardiac arrest syndrome. What do people mean by this? So that's a, if you imagine when you've had a cardiac arrest, your circulation has been switched off. You have a cascade of processes going on inside your body, which comprise, well, I suppose, reperfusion of your brain, myocardial dysfunction, and a huge systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So all of these things are going on simultaneously in the few moments and hours after cardiac arrest. And that's what we're trying to combat. We're trying to treat the brain so it gets adequately oxygenated, it gets properly ventilated, bearing in mind that will have had a hit from the uh, period of no cardiac output. We're trying to maintain perfusion down the coronary arteries. Don't forget the vast majority of these cases will have a primary cardiac cause. So we're aiming to optimize the circulation and aiming to get the patient in a stable condition whilst we diagnose what the most likely cause is and then get into a center where we can do something uh, about it and fix that. Which uh, I guess is significantly easier to do when you're in a cardiology centre as opposed to out in somebody's house in the back end of Scotland. How do we make this work pre-hospitally? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something hospital providers often tend to forget. It's very easy in the emergency department to look at the times. And often when as a PEMS consultant, I hand a patient over, I say, well, an hour and a half ago, this patient had a cardiac arrest at home. And people often look at you and they're wondering, you can read their mind thinking, uh, well, how did it take you an hour and a half to get here? But actually, the difficulties of extricating the patient from their house, uh, all of those things add to the challenge of getting these patients to hospital. So the challenges really do very much start at the point where they get return of spontaneous circulation. So let's sort of dive into the detail a little bit. Once you've got that perfusing rhythm back, that kind of necessitates a change of mindset. What's the kind of general approach? Well, I think going back to a primary survey ABC approach is a very good place to be. And I think it's also good to look at the Resuscitation Council guidelines on this. They've now produced guidelines aimed more specifically at our emergency department and intensive care colleagues, but some good guidelines on the key tenets of post-resuscitation care. So airway and breathing is there, as we expect, right at the top. We should be maintaining uh, decent oxygen saturations, not necessarily aiming for supranormal oxygenation. We think that might even cause harm. There's certainly no data from any of the large studies published in myocardial infarction that giving more oxygen than you need to improves outcome. So maintain the saturations, 94 to 98. Some form of advanced airway if the patient needs it, and that might be the form of a supraglottic device or an endotracheal tube. 
and again the onus on getting uh, rigid endotracheal intubation has maybe settled over the last few years. Waveform capnography is a very useful tool. It tells about the patient's circulation and it can sometimes give us early warning that that circulation is failing. So establishing waveform capnography is very good and ventilating the lungs gently to normocapnia. It's very easy to delegate handing the bagging over to somebody who's maybe not a medical provider and they can be pretty enthusiastic. What we don't want to do is reduce the CO2 too low and what we don't want to do is flog the lungs by high pressure inflations. Following that, assessing the circulation, all the usual stuff like getting IV access is there, but also getting an ECG. The most likely diagnosis here is going to be a cardiac one. What we're looking for is evidence of ST elevation, myocardial infarction, or maybe a rhythm problem that we can treat and uh, diagnostic features that might help us triage this patient, maybe direct to a cardiac centre. Now, managing the circulation isn't necessarily going to be easy. The patient may be hypotensive following cardiac arrest, and in the guidelines, there are some suggestions how to treat that. The guidelines do mention maybe giving a small fluid bolus, and that's something that's certainly easy to do pre-hospital. But most of these patients aren't particularly hypovolemic when they have their cardiac arrest, unless it's been from another cause, such as maybe a GI bleed. So maybe using small aliquots of adrenaline might be reasonable. So you could take, for example, the 1 in 10,000 adrenaline that we use for cardiac arrest resuscitation and maybe give half a mil to a mil of that, or maybe even draw up one mil of that up to 10 mils of saline and give that in one mil aliquots to just gently keep the blood pressure around 100. What we're aiming to do here is make enough blood go around the brain and enough blood go around the coronary circulation that we can sustain their circulation and sustain their cerebral perfusion. It's interesting, the ambulance service have got quite rigid guidelines on this. And I've often seen folk ending up on a bit of a roller coaster where you're, you're chasing blood pressure and it's skyrocketing one moment and then sat in their boots the next. Yeah, that's certainly a risk. And I, I remember resuscitating a patient many years ago in a very large uh, cardiovascular centre where they were getting you know, an ALS algorithm, one milligram of adrenaline, and they can rot immediately after that with the shock. And the blood pressure really does go on a roller coaster at that point. So small aliquots of medication are probably useful here. We have the added bonus with some of our pre-hospital HEM service that we're able to maybe fine-tune that by putting in intra-arterial monitoring in. And across East Anglia, we've recently, well, for a while now, we've been putting peripheral arterial lines in. We've now just embarked on a program of using maybe more advanced techniques of intra-arterial pressure monitoring. We need to smooth out the pre-hospital phase here to avoid those alterations in hemodynamics that you just referred to. So once we've got our blood pressure and we've had a look for arrhythmia, is there anything that we can do from a management of arrhythmia point of view? Yeah, I... Again, I would be cautious. Most of these things tend to settle with time. So profound bradycardia obviously needs treating by either atropine or pacing. Although if the patient's reliant on pre-hospital transcutaneous pacing, that's going to be a very rocky transfer to hospital. And there's a very high risk of the patient not surviving that, usually pretty sick. Recurrent ventricular tachyarrhythmias, again, are not uncommon. I would be cautious with using antiarrhythmic drugs in this setting. Magnesium isn't likely to cause any harm. Amiodrone, I'd be cautious about giving it too quickly as it can cause a bit of hypotension, but I would give the standard ALS therapies of these if they are impacting on hemodynamics. Sometimes less is more, let it ride out, it will settle down. Just make sure you're heading in the direction of a cardiac centre that knows you're coming. Excellent. And the other thing that can often cause headaches is patients who do gain a degree of cerebral function back and start to dislike having things put down their throat. What are your thoughts in terms of sedation and managing these folk who have got unprotected airways where we don't have RSI as an option? Yeah, this is a tricky area where you've got to be pragmatic, really, haven't you? You have two options, which are escalate or de-escalate. And actually, if the patient is starting to improve their GCS and they are a bit agitated and pulling at their device, you've got to make a call about whether you think it's time to take the oral airway out and let them sit up and see how they go. If they are, however, 
at the point where they are just combative and agitated, then probably a small dose of something like a benzodiazepine might be reasonable to keep them tolerant of life-saving interventions. If you have the option of calling a team to come and help you at the scene or another colleague who can help you with sedation, then now is the time to press those buttons and make that happen because that'll make the pre-hospital transfer a lot slicker. And there are some patients, we were talking about ventricular arrhythmias, where actually, because of their recurrent ventricular arrhythmias, you're having to shock them so much that really an anaesthetic, an RSI, is the only option. Without that being available, you're left with whatever sedation you're comfortable using. And that probably would be a benzodiazepine and maybe even a small dose of opiate if they're having pain. What about management of things like seizures and that kind of post-hypoxic brain insult? Yeah, so we don't often see seizures in the immediate aftermath of cardiac arrest. Sometimes you see it when it's happening, usually in the early phases. But the management of the avoidance of the brain injury probably is along similar lines, really, to that of our management of head injury. So ventilating the patient to normocapnia and ensuring adequate oxygenation and trying to optimise hemodynamics as best you can, excepting that's really, really tricky in the back of a moving ambulance to avoid seesawing the blood pressure. So it's, you know, everything we're doing here is aimed at trying to improve both cerebral and coronary outcome from this. But it is tricky in the pre-hospital phase. It's easy in a hospital with an ICU and in a cath lab where you've got invasive parameters and variables being displayed in front of you. In the back of an ambulance, it is a challenge. So working through my alphabet, I reckon if we've covered off D and dealt with agitation and, and sort of improving GCS, the next thing on my list is probably going to be thinking about temperature. Now, I know there's been a lot of seesawing on this one. Yeah, I suppose there's been a general move in the direction of avoiding hyperthermia, hasn't there? So initially, we were very aggressively cooling patients, but only those with VT or VF as an etiology. We then broadened that to include all comers from cardiac arrest. And then the data is probably showing us now that if we just control the temperature, so use targeted temperature management, that's probably good. So I would avoid pyrexia. If I was going to be with a patient for a long period of time, I would think about what temperature control we were going to employ. It might just be opening the windows of an ambulance, it's unlikely to involve active cooling in the pre-hospital phase. But I would have an eye towards deciding what we're going to do. And actually, with our advanced monitoring, it's quite often to mo possible to monitor that in the pre-hospital phase. So if I was designing what monitors my responders were going to have in the next five to 10 years, would I want temperature, uh, an esophageal temperature probe, for example, to be part of that for these cases, then yes, I probably would. So I would certainly have an eye on it. I wouldn't be warming them up actively. I would probably be allowing them to stay on the chilly side. So the opposite, really, for what we're doing with hemorrhagic shock. And is there any role for pharmacological interventions? So I'm thinking things like giving them some IV paracetamol to try and reduce that inflammatory response. I don't think we've got strong data to support that. I think if we felt that they were pyrexial as part of a septic syndrome that had made them have a seizure and they'd become hypoxic and their arrest is maybe related to that, then it might have a role in that setting. It's not something I routinely reach for in the pre-hospital setting i've usually got many other things to do and i don't think the evidence is that strong i have to say okay so we've kind of worked through most of a to e is there anything at this point when you're still sat in somebody's front room that can give you a steer in terms of prognostics it's very hard to prognosticate in the first 24 hours i think at scene prognostication is very difficult indeed and all we can do are provide our very best efforts to try and optimise cerebral and chronic perfusion. Those are the things that matter, and they probably translate into outcome. But the things we know about cardiac arrest survivors are they are best, certainly, in witnessed cardiac arrest with immediate bystander CPR and in a shock of a rhythm. And even better, where that shock has been provided by an immediately available community-operated uh, defibrillator. So if all those things are ticks, then you definitely need to get your skates on, because actually you could have a good outcome from this cardiac arrest.
part of that thinking comes into trying to work out a bit of a strategy for that transport phase. A lot of the time in rural Scotland, you're looking at an hour plus road transport and thinking ahead about what we're going to do if we get a re-arrest during that phase. A lot of these patients are old and don't have great physiological reserve. And the, the worry is that they re-arrest and we then re-traumatise them when actually their likelihood of outcome is not necessarily fantastic. Yeah, that's tricky. So I think there's a data gathering phase as well, isn't there, that will be happening whilst the resuscitation is ongoing. So certainly when I arrive and the pre-hospital resuscitation teams, my ambulance service and air ambulance colleagues are resuscitating, I'll be trying to find out as much as I can about the patient. And you're right, a long list of heavy comorbidities would make me more likely to maybe not continue resuscitation. If I've got ROSC, I suppose that's a tricky one. And I think we're going to try and get to hospital and try and get some more information there. But, you know, that's what emergency departments and intensive care departments are used to. Uh, you know, information is often not available to the rescuer during the initial resuscitation attempt. And being sensible about it, that's, you know, the hospital has more resources for finding this information out. If it becomes obvious later on that actually this patient isn't a candidate for critical care, then we can apply that at that point. I think once I've got ROSC, I've very rarely discontinued resuscitation at that point. The transfer needs to be planned. So your top level provider needs to go with the patient. Usually that's going to be you. And you need to have the equipment available to resuscitate the patient if they re-arrest. Obviously, if information has come to light, then actually maybe the patient has very significant comorbidities or their wishes were not to be resuscitated, then you might colour that differently. But generally, I'd be planning a transfer with the ability to resuscitate the patient if they deteriorate en route. One of the nice things about having this kind of length of shopping list to work through is that it takes a bit of time. And I know there's a bit of thinking currently about having a soap period before you head off in the ambulance and drive like hell for leather to hospital. What's the rationale for that? Well, there are a few key things you can get from that. The patient will declare themselves one way or the other in terms of their hemodynamic response to what's going on. You allow a time for maybe cerebral perfusion to optimise. So you might not have to anaesthetise and ventilate the patient, or you might have to, not have to call somebody else out to do that with you. So it might allow a degree of recovery and stability to happen. And it will also allow you to data gather during that phase, won't it? It allow you to talk to the relatives and find out what has gone on to get some information that might suggest what the cause was. And it'll also allow you to maybe paint a picture to yourself of what that patient was like before this happened to them. And also allows you a pause to decide, well, actually, let's think about this. You know, we think this is a myocardial infarction or a P that's caused this. Let's have a think about our destination hospital. Where should we actually go? Can we make some phone calls to some friends who might be able to accept the patient direct to a centre that can fix this? It's interesting hearing you say that we have quite a kind of geared up trauma network now across Scotland. It seems to be much less planned in terms of post-cardiac arrest management. How would you think that decision working should work? Yeah, cardiac arrest management needs to be part of a package, rather like the major trauma network that's now well established across England and Scotland. So we need to think regionally and nationally how we provide care to these patients who, as we've already said, are very, very sick indeed and actually are even more common than trauma patients. And the British Cardiac Intervention Society, which sort of owns all the interventional cardiologists, has recently formed a special group to look at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. Maybe 15 years ago, not very many of these patients would go near a cath lab, but now the data is starting to emerge, certainly observational data, that these patients do better if they're managed with aggressive critical care and are offered interventional cardiology or invasive cardiology early. And what we're looking at is working at a system whereby the patients who have a chance of survival could be taken direct to a centre where they can receive interventional cardiology if they need it. They don't necessarily need to go straight to the cath lab, 
But if you arrive in a hospital that doesn't have a cath lab and you then subsequently need it, then a secondary transfer at this point is going to be a very unpleasant undertaking and it's probably going to result in delay. And we know from myocardial infarction that the more delay you build into your system, the more increased the mortality is, the greater your chance of dying. So delay is a thing to be avoided. And similar to the major trauma bypass system, we probably need to develop a system whereby post-arrest patients who have a chance of survival get delivered to cardiac centres. It's interesting that the parallel with major trauma in that in England, there's now a very well-structured major trauma bypass system. In Scotland, it's a bit patchy because there are large areas, particularly north and west, where there's no realistic prospect of getting people to a major trauma centre within a sensible time frame. And flying is not always an option given our delightful Scottish weather. Do you have any feeling for sort of what a sensible time frame is to say, actually, now this is getting daft, we'll just head for the nearest hospital that's got some more doctors so I can have a cup of tea? Yeah, I think that's a difficult one. I, I agree with what you say. Air isn't always the answer. So Scotland has problems in terms of mountains and weather that a conventional air ambulance can't necessarily negotiate, uh, which means that the normal rules around most of the rest of England don't necessarily apply. There are situations where you just need to go to your nearest hospital and actually having a team of people around you with lights on who can help is a great advantage. And that patient in particular is the one who's combative and agitated, who hasn't reperfused their brain properly, is trying to pull out all their cannulae. And I wouldn't suggest for a minute that you know you want to plan a two-hour journey with them, topping them up with a bit of midazolam and ketamine. So if the patient is unstable and you're really struggling, my advice would be go and get help. Divert in through an ED, get help from the resuscitation team. It's quite reasonable that that patient might have a sort of a halt in that ED whilst some diagnostic data can be captured. So do they need a CT brain? Have they actually just had a catastrophic intratubal hemorrhage? Should we at the same time do a CTPA to make sure this isn't a pulmonary embolism? And when those two things are negative, we should be phoning up our cardiologist or a cardiologist in another centre to say, look, this is what the ECG looks like. Do you think this patient should have invasive cardiology? So, you know, going to the nearest hospital is never the wrong thing to do. And if you are struggling, you know, you've only got one pair of hands. It is entirely reasonable to have a pit stop somewhere else and just get some friends around you and get some help. It's really interesting and kind of ties into the message of, you know, phone a friend or ideally get a friend stood next to you so that you can share that decision-making burden. Absolutely. So to kind of round this up, what's next? Where do we need to go? What are the kind of, what's the low-hanging fruit in terms of areas that we can improve on in our resus care? So the way to improve survival in a resuscitation system is to start with the basics and look at bystander resuscitation. And we know from the data in Scotland that actually improving bystander training, so making it more accessible, improves the number of patients who get CPR. And we know from data in other countries that that improves the number of survivors. So starting with the simple stuff like doing CPR is vitally important. The other stuff like community first responder schemes and having those integrated into the ambulance service is important and having as many public access defibrillators available as possible. All of those things are key. And novel stuff looking at drone delivery of AEDs. We need to think about solutions for making stuff that we know makes patients survive happen right next to them. And integration with, you know, crowdsourcing CPR. So integration with apps such as GoodSAM are crucial to making patients survive. Because without CPR and without defibrillation, we can arrive with a pre-hospital ECMO kit, take them to the most advanced cath lab, but the patient still isn't going to survive. So starting at the basics. Sending our top-level providers as well, I think, is important. So identifying cardiac arrest is something that is potentially salvageable. And deploying systems like the 3RU, so the Rapid Resuscitation Response Units that have been developed across Scotland, that's very important. And having an interest and auditing and focusing on this stuff. People always say at resuscitation academy meetings, you can't improve 
what you don't measure. And that's absolutely true. And one of the things we've been trying to develop in the Air Ambulance Service in East Anglia is they're having a dashboard. We have a lot of data about this and we should probably see it every month and know how many patients we're getting ROSC in and how many patients we're transferring direct to a cardiac centre. And if that information isn't fed back to providers, it's very hard to improve. Going beyond that, we need a system, don't we? So we need a post-cardiac arrest system. The Recess Council's Resuscitation to Recovery book is well worth a read. And its key take-home message there is every patient following out of hospital cardiac arrest should be taken to a dedicated centre of care, somewhere where they can receive emergency medicine care, intensive care and critical care and invasive cardiology if they need it, with some other things like maybe mechanical support for some patients and electrophysiology input if they need it. So simple stuff and complex stuff welded together is what we need. Fantastic. One of the things we've been asking all of our presenters to do is to give us three top tips for basics responders, in this case, dealing with a post-resuscitation patient. So the first one is to train and talk through this kind of stuff, okay? It doesn't happen very frequently. You need to train at it when you're sitting in the response car or you're sitting in the surgery or sitting in the hospital or on the helipad or whatever you're doing and you're not at a cardiac arrest, you should be saying, well, if we get called to the 50-year-old local running champion cardiac arrest now in the locker room, what are we going to do? What roles are we going to do? Who's going to go where? And where are we going to take him if we get Ross? And what are we going to do if we don't get Ross? And it's important to be positive about these cases and avoid nihilism. If you go to every cardiac arrest thinking, oh, we're not going to get a survivor here, then you're not going to be geared up to providing in a rapid manner, those inputs that make them survive. So train and talk through is tip number one. Tip two, <laughs> it's really you need to do slick, rehearsed, effective ALS and get help coming fast. So do things rapidly. Get your air assets coming early. So if you think you're going to need to fly the patient, don't wait until you're 10 minutes post-ROS. Get them coming early and get an ECG. That's not really much of a tip, is it? But that's slick, rehearsed, effective ALS. The third thing is have an exit strategy. Have the local primary PCI centre activation numbers programmed into your phone. Know the strengths of your local hospitals. Meet the cardiologist. So something we did in Dundee was actually we set up a few days where the ambulance service and the cardiology got together and had joint training sessions so that everybody could understand everybody else's perspective. But have an exit strategy. So tip number one, train. Tip number two, effective ALS. Tip number three, have an exit strategy. Fantastic. It's music to our ears to hear the, the kind of the top tips from somebody who's as specialised as you are being things that are all very achievable. You, know, you said it earlier on, it's, it's the basics that work well. And that's the message that we've been sort of banging on for a long time. Yeah, I think that's true. It is. And if you speak to people who developed the 3RU system, so speak to Richard Lyon, who I was listening to the other day in one of the other podcasts in the series, you know, that is exactly what they did. They trained, they audited. And they did simple things incredibly well, and that resulted in better outcomes. Paul, thanks so much for coming in and sharing your wisdom with us. And with a bit of luck, we will make a marginal gain and improve some post-resus care and hopefully then feed that back into the system so that we can keep learning from it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for asking. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.